the advice that our parents gave us, which is well-meaning at the time because they, they want what's best for us, but it's just, it's like decades out of date. <laughs> we yeah. need to rewrite the rule book because their advice just doesn't work anymore. podcast listener even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey know that today right now in your earbuds you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better more profitable location independent businesses if you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog check out tropicalmba.com Ayo, welcome back to the TMBA podcast. Of course, this is the show where we talk about achieving personal, financial, and locomotive freedom through building a commonly called a lifestyle business. I'm just going to say it by building a lifestyle business. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about what I believe to be sort of the very first thing that you do in starting a lifestyle business. You know, a lot of people think that that's coming up with a great idea. They think it's quitting their job. They think it's partnering with somebody or getting an investor. And all of that's wrong. Today, we are going to talk about the very first step in starting a lifestyle business. But before we do that. I'm excited to hear what that is because I, I thought it was all the things that you just mentioned. <laughs> before we do that, man, it's been great to have you here in Barcelona. I'll give a little behind the scenes. When we are together, you'd think that we would just be podcasting our faces off. But instead, what we're doing is talking about business for hours on end. And then finally, at the end, we're like, dude, we have to record a podcast or else nothing's going to happen here. Yeah. I hope the listeners can vibe with that. When you meet people that you can just talk shop with, like, it's like the ultimate game. You know, it's so much fun. What are we going to do? Like, what moves are we going to make? This is also like just part of who you are and who I am like I had a roommate until like three years ago (laughs) you know I just had a kid this year I was really holding on to that because what would I do go sit in the living room and talk shop for hours every night and it's a lot of fun what a wonderful environment to talk shop in too we're right off of the beach in Barcelona in a pretty epic 19th century apartment with what do you say 16 foot ceilings 14 to 16 foot ceilings Parquet wood floors, which are basically hand-stitched wood floors with different design elements. It's a really interesting place, and I'll just say where it is. It's called the 1840 Apartments in Barcelona. I actually had the opportunity to meet the owner. This building has been in his family since the 1800s. Incredible. The way I understand it is his family were fishermen, and they went off to Cuba to make a living, started a bank, came back, built this building, actually physically built this building, and it's been passed down generation to generation. Cool. Well, let's talk about where all this stuff comes from, boss man. There was a time when in the not so recent past that the idea of having this conversation in a city like this was literally unimaginable or if imagined painful to do so because the likelihood that that would ever happen to somebody like us was virtually zero. Those of us in America specifically, the chances feel even lower because we have very limited holidays and very limited vacation time. And where does it all begin? For me, starting a business that gives you these sorts of freedoms doesn't begin with the idea or or the partner or the investor or the supplier relationship or the landing page. It begins with your personal 
finances. Treating your bank account, your spending, your earning like a business is the beginning. Funnily enough, it wasn't four-hour work week or Seth Godin or 37 Signals. It was Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey, the financial guru, was my guy. That's when my entrepreneurial career really started. You'll have a very hard time starting a business and being able to commit the time and the resources that you need to commit to something that's going to be successful if you're in a bunch of debt because the creditors will come after you. They'll come after your whatever it is, your house, your car, your credit cards, and they're relentless and you'll get buried. And essentially, you're going to have to serve them before you serve your business. Right. If you're in that situation, you will have very limited resources to allocate towards a business. So that's why it's so important to get that kind of thing sorted out. Now, a few weeks ago, if you recall, we played an episode where we presented entrepreneurship and this early retirement community as sort of in opposition to each other, like an evangelical argument. But the reality and the theme of this show is that they're not opposites at all. They're just two sides of the same token. If you want to Google around the web, it's called FIRE, Financial Independence, Retire Early. This whole scene on the internet is fascinating. And after that episode, we went out and we, we started searching around for FIRE blogs that we felt really had a lot to offer to the community. And we found that one that we really enjoy reading who seemed to have found a very sane balance between the two worlds. My name is Bryce. I, I write as the Wanderer on our blog, MillennialRevolution.com. This is Christy, my wife. Yeah, and I write as Firecracker on MillennialRevolution.com. We're retired. Yeah, yeah we're so. retired in our 30s and yeah, we're traveling the world. So Christy and Bryce are Canadians. And what's interesting is that, as their blog name suggests, they are millennials. And so we're a good deal younger than some other prominent figures in the fire or financial independent retire early space like Mr. Money Mustache. I really dug this conversation and in it, we dig into some of the specifics of Christy and Bryce investment strategy, how they survived the crash of 2008 and the common mistakes people make with financial planning and a whole lot more. I retired at the age of 31 and so we retired with a million dollar portfolio and the reason why it's a million dollars is because we are following the four percent rule of thumb which is if you build a portfolio that is big enough it can allow you to safely withdraw four percent per year that means it can last you indefinitely at that point you become financially independent which means that the portfolio is generating enough passive income to cover your expenses so that you no longer need to work so currently we are traveling the world on $40,000 a year which is all paid for by our portfolio so we no longer need to work and now we uh, you know travel the world we run the blog with the goal of teaching other people how to do it because uh, what's unique in our story is that we didn't really rely on any kind of weird random luck factor. Like we didn't buy houses in 2008. We didn't buy Amazon when it was like $10. We didn't start the next Snapchat. We just worked our you know normal jobs, saved up our money and made sure that we didn't do anything stupid, like buying an overpriced house and going deep into debt or getting the wrong degree and then getting into like massive student loans that you can't discharge. And we 
kept saving, saving, saving. And the initial idea was to buy a house. But once we realized that we could do this other, much better thing with that, we then invested it. That's how we got here. It really wasn't with anything that any other person couldn't do. So that's what was unique about our story in that it's entirely mathematically reproducible. How many years did it take in, in your case? It took about eight and a half years. Tell me about the ad inception moment. Originally, we were actually doing the normal path, which was, you know, buy a house, have kids, work until you're 65, and then retire with a pension. So back in 2012, that was when we were really gung-ho on buying a house. But what happened is because we live in Toronto and the housing prices have been going crazy, every single year that you save money, the housing price just keeps going up. So it was really like a runaway finish line that we could never cross. At that point, when I started seeing that my coworkers were all stressed out, like some of them, like my boss had a blood clot and my coworkers were, they were taking anti-anxiety meds. A lot of them were taking a short-term disability leave. Yeah. One of them actually collapsed and almost died at his desk from stress. That was the turning point in which I realized, okay, I can't do this anymore. Like, it doesn't make sense. that like, This advice that our boomer parents have been telling us for, for decades to do this no longer makes sense because the, our situation is different. Jobs are no longer that stable. You can't get one job and work until you're 65 and then just leave with a pension. It was not possible anymore. And because I saw my coworkers stressing out from paying off their mortgage, I wanted a different path. I, I wanted to be financially free and not be you know, burdened with a giant mortgage. So around this point, we started looking into investing. We started reading books on investing. We discovered financial independence blogs. There's a blog from Mr. Money Mustache. I believe he was on your show before. We started reading about Your Money or Your Life from Vicky Robin. And then we read another blog from J.L. Collins, from Jim, who writes about how to invest with low-cost index ETFs. At that point, we discovered this entire movement called the FIRE movement, which stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And that was the point in which I thought, like a light bulb clicked on, and I thought, hey, this is much better. I don't have to be a corporate prisoner until I'm 65 and possibly drop dead at my desk before I can even <laughs> retire. Why not do this instead? So we totally switched gears in 2012, and then we invested everything. And then from 2012 to 2000, and the end of 2014, that was how long it took us to become financially independent once we realized there was a way better goal than our original goal of buying a house and paying off a mortgage. Yeah, all we really did was we just redirected all the savings that were going towards the down payment into an index portfolio instead. And yeah, it really didn't take that long to hit the million. And once we hit the million, we quit. We never looked back. Did your lifestyle change substantially when you picked up the ideas from this movement you found? Well, once we had a goal, it was much easier to run towards that goal. I grew up poor and I, I didn't actually, wasn't actually born in Canada. I was born in China. So I was relatively frugal to begin with, but then I was still blowing a lot of money on eating out on vacations. We spent like at least $6,000 a year on vacation. And then eating out at one point, it was like $1,500 a month for food, which is a lot for two people. Once we discovered this new goal, then I started tracking everything, and that made a huge difference. So once you have that goal, you run towards that goal, and we actually became financially independent a lot faster than I thought we would. So I think a big part of it was just realizing this is actually something I really wanted, and I was willing to prioritize things that were important and then just cut everything else. Yeah, initially when we were saving up, it was just kind of like, oh, you know, save up money, and then you'll be able to get this house, which you'll then spend the next 25 years paying off. Then when we uh, redid the math and says, okay, you could buy this house and pay it off in 25 years, or you could retire and never have to work again in three. 
Can you describe the careers you were in? I mean, I'd love to hear like what that scenario was. Cause when I was in a career, I found it very difficult to sort of be the one who's different from everybody else in the office. You described these careers as very high stress. Yeah, we're both engineers, computer engineers. I worked at a Silicon Valley company that got bought out by another bigger company, and she worked at a bank. In this community, the fire community, one of the striking things we noticed that there's a very overabundance of engineers. It's like the career almost, there's parts of this of engineering that causes people to be almost like preternaturally disposed to doing this fire thing. Like we're all tend to be good with numbers. We all tend to like enjoy spending our weekends messing around with spreadsheets. <laughs> we tend to have pretty like average to above average salaries. And at the same time, our culture doesn't require us to wear fancy suit and drive Maseratis and like this kind of stuff. People that write into us, I'm often surprised to find there's a lot of like doctors and lawyers and these, you know, finance people who are really highly paid, but at the same time, they're spending everything that they earn because they have, you know, two houses, like a Ferrari. Our culture doesn't reward ostentatious displays of wealth, which is nice. That's why a lot of engineers tend to accidentally stumble themselves into this space. I'm wondering, like, are there other categories of people that you see having success in the fire community? All types. All types. Teachers can be popular as well. Mm -hmm. They tend to be pretty conservative in their spending. For example, one of the readers that wrote in to us, he is actually a English teacher in South Korea, living in South Korea. Now, he only makes 32000 to 33000 a year. However, because taxes are only 3% where he lives and his job covers his flights in and his living expenses, like his cost of rent, he is able to save 66% of his salary a year, which makes him about 10 or 15 years from financial independence. So that's like another example of someone who's using not just in a different career they're teaching, but they're also using geographic arbitrage and being able to be in a position in which the job covers their rent to be able to get to FI faster. There's an overabundance of engineers, but there seems to be an underrepresentation of financial planners and like, like stock pickers and like these kinds of Wall Street guys, which is very, very interesting because you figure if anybody knows how to manage money, it would be those guys. But so far, I haven't actually met any that are in that field, which is interesting, right? What voice did you guys feel like you had to bring to this FIRE community? I think a younger voice from the millennial generation. I think because our generation keeps getting a lot of flack, you know, for being lazy, for being entitled. Why isn't the lazy millennial getting a job like the boomers who are a lot more hardworking, all those things. But the thing is, our generation faces a lot of different issues that our parents didn't have to face. Like jobs are a lot less stable. We have to face outsourcing. Interest rates are at an all-time low. So the boomers did really well with housing, whereas for us, the housing prices are really out of reach. So I think the, the advice that our parents gave us, which is well-meaning at the time, because they, they want what's best for us, but it's just, it's like decades out of date. <laughs> we, yeah. we need to rewrite the rule book because their advice, although well-meaning, just doesn't work anymore. I mean, like what they did was they bought a house when a house was like two times their family income, and they just watched their home values go up and up and up and up and up. And then, so all they really need to do, which is stay in one place, stay in their employer, and then sell their house at the end of their career, and then, and then you're done. That doesn't work anymore for us, because we are buying at like a really high trough. I think something like the average home in a high-cost city is something like 17, 18 times what your annual salary is like. So when we bought a house, we have to take on decades of debt. When they did, they didn't have to. There's no point in having loyalty to your employer when they don't really have any intention of being loyal to us, right? I mean, like, we had to deal with layoffs and outsourcing and all this kind of stuff that they just didn't, just didn't exist back in the 70s and back in the 80s, right? 
Yeah, you guys have a lot of interesting stances on ownership. Like you have an article called Why Pride of Ownership is Bullshit. A lot of home ownership is emotionally based and not based on math. Out of all the friends I talk to, when you ask them just simple, basic questions, they can tell you how much their mortgage is worth, but they don't tell you how much it costs for maintenance, how much it costs for insurance. They don't even think of that as actually part of the cost of home ownership, right? So it really, when you break it down, it really is an emotional plea to get as many people into that home ownership trap as possible. Otherwise, they are afraid that their housing price is going to fall, right? So the way I see it is like, you really have to distance yourself from the emotional decision and really think about it in terms of like what we always like to say on the blog, which is math shit up, right? If you want to buy a house, you can do that and it makes sense for you, but you got to math shit up. Like, look at the math. Don't just believe when people say, well, it's pride of home ownership. But, you know, being a renter is a loser and throwing your money away when you are a renter. But do the actual math and prove that that is true before you make the purchase. Yeah, if you're actually to, to look at the financial, like the numbers of it, a home is a terrible investment. We did this analysis where we took, okay, here's an average home. People on average tend to own a home for about five years. So we said, okay, so let's say a stock market is appreciating at 7% a year. Let's be really generous and say that the home is appreciating at 7% also during that same amount of time. So who wins kind of thing, right? And shockingly, what happens with the home is that when you factor in the real estate, and we do this analysis on the blog, when you factor in the real estate commissions, the transaction fees, the property tax, the land transfer tax, the maintenance, the insurance, like all these extra costs that a renter wouldn't have to pay, when it comes time for that homeowner to sell their house that has been appreciating, again, at 7% per year and at the same rate as the stock market, 97% of their gain got eaten up by these costs. So of that like entire housing gain, they got to keep 3% of it. The rest of those gains got stolen, basically, by banks, by insurance brokers, by you know home hardware, by their government. But they're left looking at this big number that they just sold it for, and they're patting themselves on the back by saying, I'm such a genius. But in reality, they didn't have any money. It was all stolen. One thing I have this tremendous admiration for for the real estate market is just how slick their marketing oh, yeah. is. Mm -hmm. That line, renting is throwing your money away, it's so few words, but it, there's so much fear that you yeah, can just lace exactly. into that sentence. One of the things I like about the way you guys write is you just show what you do rather than like sort of prescribing things. I, I appreciate that. My sense is like for you, you think about real estate, there's an opportunity cost there for you because you have better ways to activate that money for you. Is there a moment that you would make the concession to buy real estate, like a sort of a overall portfolio size? Have you ever mathed that up and said, oh, maybe we would buy a home at sort of this level? Oh, we own real estate. It's called a REIT. <laughs> it's an investment trust that owns a bunch of properties like shopping malls commercial and properties, commercial yeah. properties and office buildings and real estate. And every month they pay us a rental check. That's, it's just a thing that uh, REITs are just something that you can buy inside of any investment portfolio. So people are often surprised to find out, oh, we own real estate, just not directly. Because now I get, I don't have to swing we don't a have hammer. To do anything. I don't yeah. have to evict a tenant. I don't have to worry about weed grow ups. Like, I get all the benefits and I don't have to do any of that other bullshit. Plus it's diversified and we can sell it within a day. Saying like if we were ever to make the decision of buying a house as a lifestyle choice, likely I would use the 1% rule of thumb for real estate. So for example, if the house is $100,000 and the rent in that area is $1,000, so if the rent is 1%, monthly rent is 1% of the cost of the house, then we would consider buying. Yeah, that rule came from another blogger called Paula Pant from affordanything.com, she actually 
made her money in real estate, so she knows what she's talking about. And even then, she's like extremely cautious exactly. about when yeah. to buy. She shows all the costs of home ownership rather than just you know assuming that you just have to pay the mortgage. Yeah, the nasty thing about real estate, which I keep telling people, is that for the stock market, it sounds scary, right? I mean, like if you don't know what you're doing, you're just kind of like, oh, what do I do? And then what most people do when they don't understand something is they don't buy it. For real estate. People actually don't understand how all the math works, but they just buy anyway. So it has this false sense of security that's super dangerous for real estate. When you guys like rock up into your clients or your readers who have careers, what are the big mistakes, like the bonehead mistakes that everybody's out there making that you just sort of can have some easy wins with people and get them turned around towards the path of early retirement? I would say for American readers, one of the biggest mistakes is the amount of student debt. Oh my God, student debt. Yeah, we don't see any student debt in other countries like in the 200,000 range. That's very normal for an American reader, but from like a Canadian perspective or from European perspective, that is unheard of. That is one of the most common mistakes is getting into a lot of student debt because a lot of people don't evaluate the return on investment for their degree. They kind of just say, well, this is my passion. I'm just going to do it. Like, you know, that's the whole point of my life is to follow my passion, which comes a lot from the Steve Jobs Stanford speech, which is, you know, follow your passion. That's that's the only thing that matters. But at the end of the day, you really want to be able to get that return on your investment back. And you don't want to be saddled with paying off debt for decades of your life and getting a really late start compared to everyone else. And the second big mistake is obviously overpaying on their home. That's, you know, we talk a lot about that as well. And then the third one that I keep seeing over and over again is they just don't know where all the money is going. We do reader case studies on our site. And I keep telling people like 80% of the work is simply writing in and like finding out all of your, like go finding your pay stubs, looking at your credit card statements, summarizing all that information into one email and sending it to me is like 80% of the work of actually doing a financial analysis. Because like within like five minutes, I could look at it and be like, oh, this is how long you can take to retire. This is maybe if you do this, it'll go faster. Maybe if you do this, it'll go slower. Not knowing where all their money is going is a third big mistake. And, and, and then the fourth I would say is that when the husband and the wife or the couple aren't on the same page and like that tends to screw people over, but I can't fix that. That's yeah, more of a marriage really counseling thing. So I go, you might want to talk to your wife about this before you write in. <laughs> you, know, you know, resolve or that husband, first. Yeah. Or husband, yeah. Was one of you guys first to this party and had to convince the other? I, I knew about it first, but it didn't yeah, take me much I, time I think, to convince you. I think I was already, I'm kind of an optimizer to begin with. So I think for me, it was like naturally something that was very appealing to me. And then selling Bryce on it is just, we get to travel the world. No, don't really have to do much selling on that. So, All I had to do to sell this to her was just kind of, you could quit your hateful job. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and then for me, it was like, I actually you know, liked my career quite a bit. So for me, it was just kind of, and then we can travel the world. And I was like, okay, let's give that a shot, right? So you know, no regrets. I yeah, mean. so I think that's one of the advantages that we were able to get there so much faster. Even though we predicted five years, we got there in slightly less than three after we discovered the financial independence because we were rowing in the same direction and we were both very attracted by the idea that we could optimize and get to a goal that we have control over. This idea of sort of radically reducing your consumer habits and your lifestyle habits for a decade or more, I think is a really tough one, particularly if maybe the motivation in the first place is that you don't want to have a career for the rest of your life. What do you guys say to people in that situation where they sort of feel like they're not making a lot of money, their lifestyle sort of sucks and their career sort of sucks? And does FIRE have something for them? I would say that it's definitely a lot easier if you're you know, within the STEM field, science, technology, medicine, so like the higher earning professions. 
I would say that based on some of the readers that have written in, definitely it's not as easy if you have a lower salary, but it is possible. You would have to either find a way to get a promotion and increase your salary, or what some people do is they start side hustles in addition to their existing career, because the side hustles gives you kind of like a killing three birds with, with one stone in that you develop a new skill, you end up basically creating something that you, you want to do after retirement because financial independence doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It's just you have the option to quit your job. So if you develop a side hustle, that's like a passion that you can work on in retirement, which makes retirement even more enjoyable. And the third one is that it helps you not only get to financial independence faster because it develops a second stream of income. It also decreases the portfolio size you need to actually retire. So for example, say you think about like a million dollars, that is way too much money. I'm never going to be able to get there. However, if you are actually making, or you're going down to part-time, you're actually making income in, you know, quote, quote, retirement, and you're making $20,000, for example, as a freelance writer, and you're traveling the world, then you don't actually need a million dollars. You only need enough portfolio to cover half your expenses, right? So $20,000 would be covered by the portfolio and $20,000 would be your side gig that you've been working on, on your way to becoming financially independent. So you actually only need $500,000 in terms of a portfolio to generate that amount. So I would say for people in other fields, the option is to start a side hustle and then keep working on that so that the portfolio is more like your FU money, right? Which allows you to not be forced to actually have a job, but you can actually use that to supplement your expenses in retirement. That's one way to go, which we call like side fire or partial fire. There's actually a term in the community. Today's show is sponsored by Noviland. If you've ever run a product-based business, you know that sourcing from overseas is frustrating from beginning to end. There's communication breakdowns, lack of reliability, quality control, and the list goes on and on. Noviland has come up with a solution to all that. They're a US-based, free-to-use e-procurement platform with a wide network of over 2,000 custom manufacturers overseas. They can help you to get factory pricing on a wide array of products quickly and easily. With Noviland, your only point of contact is a U.S.-based account manager who is there to help you solve your concerns. Once you create your free account with Noviland.com, they will take you over the entire sourcing process. Noviland handles everything from finding you the right manufacturer to getting you the best price. They provide samples, sort out logistics, and then keep you up to date on how the order is progressing. To get started, visit Noviland.com now. It takes just five minutes to set up a free account and submit a request for a quote. Then the operations team in China will get to work finding the perfect factory for your product. Check it out today. Use the promo code TMBA20 to get a $20 credit added to your account. And a big thanks to Noviland for sponsoring this week's show. So let's get back to the show. Because here's where the interview tackles that chasm, or what turns out to be a faux chasm between the fire community and entrepreneurs. What frequently enrages what Mr. Money Mustache has called the Internet Retirement Police, or the IRP, is when successful early retirees often turn out, some years down the line, to have other income streams, either from businesses they've set up, or from their blogs, or from courses they're selling. And to their credit, this is something that Christy and Bryce tackle head on. At first, I thought you think it's just kind of like sour grapes and being like, yeah, yeah, shut up, that kind of thing, right? But they do have a legitimate reason for doing that because what everyone's doing 
when they go to these finance blogs is a they're doing it to be entertained and they want to figure out and they want to see how your interesting life is going and that's that's good but the big reason why people do it is they want to replicate it themselves so when people start coming up and being able to do side hustles and or their blog grows big enough that they actually an income comes from that their criticism is that okay well you're not really doing the actual retirement thing, right? I mean, like, you're not actually living off the portfolio, you're living off the blog. And the reason why that's a problem is because it kind of perverts the experiment. You're not really sure whether it works long-term if the person that you're reading isn't actually withdrawing off the portfolio. So rather than actually just like yelling at those people, we actually do address that. We segregate the funds that we manage to make outside of retirement into a separate portfolio that is just used to pay for business expenses or gifts to family members and, you know, non-essential like extra spending that we disclose on the blog when we do that. I don't think we've actually done it yet. But the real portfolio, the one that we originally retired on, we continue to live off of that every year. I'm happy to report that the experiment has been successful. Even just living off of the first portfolio, the initial million dollars, not only has it survived a stock market crash in 2015, it's actually gone up over time. So we're now like after three years in retirement, we're now sitting on more money in that portfolio than when we started off with. We're actually making money in retirement by doing this while sitting on a beach in Thailand, which is just insane, right? But you know, that's actually, once you understand how the math works, that's how easy it gets. So that's kind of why we do the blog because we're just kind of like, hey, you know, if you do this, you don't have to worry about money ever again either. One of the things I was talking with my business partner last night, we were like always like, man, there's a crash coming. You know, we're sort of, we remember 2008 so much. And would your strategy adjust, say something like really horrible happened in the next few weeks? Maybe we could say hypothetically that the market went down 35 or 40%. What would be sort of like the short-term and medium-term implications for your strategy? Great question. Okay, so this is something that we do kind of uniquely with us because we're kind of pessimists and worrywarts. And we also kind of worry about the exact same thing that you did. So when at the time that you retire, what you do is we created something we called a yield shield. So we shifted our assets somewhat towards higher yielding assets rather than just like all in stocks. Because if you do all in stocks, you have to sell every year in order to raise cash to provide for your living expenses. But if you shift your assets into higher yielding things like preferred shares, corporate bonds, REITs, dividend yielding, uh, high dividend stocks. And by high yield, you just mean they're paying more than that 4%. Those assets pay somewhere between like around three and a half percent. So our overall portfolio is now yielding, you know, three percent. So that three, three and a half percent gets paid to you whether there is a market crash or not, right? Because those are dividends or income or stuff coming in from like fixed income, stuff coming in from REITs, like those don't get hammered as much or they'll stay the same when the stock market goes down. So you don't need to sell as much. On top of that, we keep a, a, a amount of cash outside of the portfolio and outside our day-to-day living expenses called a cash cushion, which is equal to about three years. Right now, it's about three years of the difference between how much we spend and how much that yield shield allows you to cover for. So that allows you to survive three years by eating into the cash cushion rather than being forced to sell any funds. And the third you know, line of defense from that is what we do now, geographic arbitrage. Simply by moving to a low-cost country, you can lower your living costs by quite a bit. If we were to, for example, spend a year in Southeast Asia, our living expenses would drop from about 40000 to around 20000 20, 20, And then all of a sudden, we're living within that yield shield. So we have the saying that we write on the blog and in this book that we're writing, if shit hits the fan, we're moving to Thailand. <laughs> that allows you to survive indefinitely and wait for the market correction to happen because 
market crashes will happen, but you get screwed over when you are forced to sell at the bottom of the market. If you just hold or if you're accumulating, as we were in 2008, able to buy into it as it's plummeting, when the index inevitably recovers, all your money comes back. When we started investing, it was just my portfolio at the time, in 2008, yeah, I, I literally just kind of like started investing in like the fall of 2007. We're like, this is going to go great. Like everything goes on fire. But because I knew how index investing works, I kept buying into it as the stock markets were plummeting, which felt horrible at the time because I would literally put in a thousand dollars and like buy a thousand dollars worth of ETFs. And then the next day, my portfolio would go down by a thousand dollars. So it, it's kind of like that South Park episode where they're just kind of like, and it's all gone, right? We should roll that clip. One of my favorites. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. A really smart decision, young man. We can put that check in a money market mutual fund. Then we'll reinvest the earnings into foreign currency accounts with compounding interest, and it's gone. Yeah, exactly. But then as it came back up, I was able to, because I bought more units when it was lower, I was able to participate in the upsides more strongly than the downside. And we actually managed to get out of 2008 within like two years, and we didn't lose any money. The strategy is... Like you have a sweet exotic locale that you can lay low for the recovery. You have three years of living expenses set aside in cash. And then the third part was confusing to me. You buy higher yield assets. What are those? So our portfolio when we retired is about 60 equity, 40 fixed income, meaning that 60% of your portfolio is invested in the equity market. So the stock market specifically invested in low cost index funds. And then 40% of it is invested in fixed income, like uh, government bonds and this kind of stuff. So when you retire, if you shift your assets, like for example, inst- like take part of your low-yielding government bonds and then buy preferred shares, because government bonds pay about 2 2.5%, but preferred shares pay around like 45 to 5%, right? You kind of do that all across the portfolio, which we write about in the blog if your listeners want to go and look and see exactly what the ETFs that we use to do this for, because this kind of thing doesn't really translate well on a podcast. No, I understand. That increases your portfolio yield so that it's yielding more as a percentage of your overall portfolio. And you can use that to weather the bad times in combination which, with the cash cushion as well as the geographic arbitrage to control your expenses when bad things happen. You guys have turned into pretty impressive hustlers building this new income for yourself and having a new career as entrepreneurs, I think it's fair to say. Now that you're like working out this skill set and muscle, would it have informed your strategy differently had you known about it when you found about the fire movement we didn't plan to do any of this stuff afterwards christy had always wanted to be a writer when she was growing up but you know we both went into engineering for the money so we started doing this whole writing thing and we've been doing this writing as a side hustle while we were still working not expecting it to make any money at all and initially when we first got into writing we were writing children's books like fiction books that we went through traditional publishing and there's no money in any of that so all of this stuff that happened now, it was a complete surprise, but I don't think it would inform us differently as we were starting off because being the pessimistic engineers that we are, we have to assume that there's going to be no money that you make afterwards and to build the portfolio and to build the yield shield under that assumption. So anything after that is just bonus, right? But so all of this has been a happy surprise and we have to be careful not to like, we have to care to segregate those funds and make sure that it still allows us to test and do the experiment for other people to make sure that what we do really is like reproducible. And so far, yeah, it is. What do you think are the biggest barriers to people getting into this sort of thing? I think a lot of it is just the fact that everybody's bombarded with 
like sales pitches from all different angles. Because if you think about it, it's a lot easier to sell you something shiny, like a shiny object, than to tell you, okay, you know, save and invest for the long term. And then in 10 years, you'll be able to retire. And in 15 years, you'll be able to retire. So I think fighting off basically commercialism is going to be their biggest struggle. We're just bombarded every day with ads, with uh, our friends and this like FOMO, fear of missing out from all different directions. So it really is just staying the course and having like what I recommend is having a community of people who are interested in the same thing and that will cheer you on and that makes sure that everybody is going towards the same goal and not stray from that and then be suckered into all these like commercial shiny objects that everybody's being bombarded with. And as a crawler to that, this stuff that we learned about, like all this financial independence stuff, we only learned about it because we stumbled across Money Mustache, maybe like five, seven years after we graduated. This information that we have now, people that are coming out of university or people that are getting into university and picking their careers or college, I guess, that are picking their careers for the first time, they need to know this information, but they're not getting it, right? I mean, like people are making decisions, big decisions that are going to affect them for decades later with no information about how to like do that properly. So it's just like, you know, how smart were you in, at, the, at the end of high school? I mean, how smart am I now? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we're all just, well, arguably we're all idiots now just doing random <laughs> things, but even we, everyone was even more of an idiot back then doing random things. So by the time they reach this stuff, like then they realize, ah, oh, crap, if only I had known, I wouldn't have made that mistake like 10 years ago. They have a defeatist attitude. A little bit. There's always a way out. Like, as we tell people, even with those massive student debts, there are ways to discharge that student debt, although it's much harder for Americans. They don't get the information early enough. It's a lot easier to sell consumerism than it is to sell early retirement. But unfortunately, early retirement is the information that people need, and consumerism is the one that they don't need, but that's the one that they get. Sometimes entrepreneurship can masquerade as a solution as well, because people, they seek the big win. They like feel like maybe they don't have to worry about these sort of core considerations financially, because like, I'm just going to live a great lifestyle, go around and I'm going to hit a home run. And then all this is going to be sorted out. Have you seen that attitude? It's like, if you're trying it, everybody else is also trying it, right? So it's not like you're not in a bubble into like, we had a, had a little bit of that entrepreneurship, like dip in the water when we were writing a book, which is that idea that I describe engineering as climbing a mountain. Like you, you see that you have to climb this Mount Everest thing and it's so hard and it's so high, but you know what direction to go versus like entrepreneurship. And like in some cases becoming an author is like you're in a dark cave and you have no idea how to get out and you don't know where to find the light source. You don't know if you're going to find any matches. You're just feeling around in the dark until you actually find your way out. And at the same time, everybody else is also trying to write a book and everybody else could be trying to become an entrepreneur as well, right? So that idea of like, I'm just not going to think about the finances and this thing is just going to take off. I'm going to be the next Stephanie Meyer. I'm going to make like $10 million. I mean, that's a great, you know, mindset to have. You want to have that enthusiasm so that you don't give up when there's obstacles, but you also got to be realistic, right? In that everybody else is also doing it at the same time. You have to be fighting with them for market share. It's not going to be easy. Like you're going to have to find your way out of the dark. We know this in intimately because like, you know, people keep saying, oh, wow, you know, we made this blog, Millennial Revolution, we're writing this book. We must have just hit a home run. This is probably our sixth or seventh attempt at starting a business. The mm -hmm. first, yeah. all of them just failed yeah. miserably. Nobody hears about that stuff because it's like we've written like apps before. We've made like websites before. Apps were a big thing. Like the book, the blog that you see now is the third iteration of the blog. No, maybe fourth. We made three failed blogs that had no traffic before this one. So, I mean, like, entrepreneurship is 
great, but I'd argue it's a lot harder than the actual path that we took to get yeah. into here. And I don't think it's one or the other, right? It could be like a hybrid approach. I, I think that ours is more of a hybrid approach because you, on one hand, you, you know the, the straight and narrow way, which is like, you know, save money, you're working your regular job. But then at the same time, if you fail at the entrepreneurship, and sometimes you will fail in the beginning because it takes time to actually learn that skill. It doesn't hurt you because you have a full-time job. And then once the portfolio is built, then your stress level goes down because your cost of living is being covered by the portfolio. So then you can fearlessly do all those things you wanted to do. Like you can fearlessly follow your passion like Steve Jobs says, and it won't actually hurt you. Right. Like you said, you didn't think it would make money, which is kind of interesting. Sometimes it's like that when you like tap into what you uniquely value, it comes around to being like an asset to others and they're willing to trade for it in the future. Right. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. the strangest thing that's happened afterwards where it's just kind of like, once we became millionaires and we retired, we just started doing what we thought was the right thing to do rather than what all like, the investment books started like tell you to do. So like it took away our fear. Like when we were starting up apps and this kind of stuff when we were working, we were constantly like, oh, is this going to take off? It better take off in three months. Otherwise, yeah, I'm not going to. Exactly. Otherwise, we need the money. to. Live otherwise, it, yeah. we need the money. We need the money. But then afterwards, you can just be authentic about what you're doing and then people latch on to that. Exactly. Like and we don't have to, we, we get tons of like sponsorship offers on a daily basis. And usually it's really bad products like credit cards, getting people into more debt. And we say no to all of them because we don't need the money. So it's really just, we don't want anything from you. Like this is how we're living our life. It helped us a lot in getting out of the rat race and reducing our stress. So feel free to copy our moves if you want, but we are not trying to sell you anything. Yeah, we don't was, need the money. Yeah, weirdest thing. It's like we only found success as an entrepreneur after we no longer needed the money. <laughs> then people started just throwing money at us. Where the hell were you guys back then? What have you guys said or what are you going to say in the book? What have you said on the blog that you get flack for it, people bust you up about it to give you shit, but you're like, nope, this is important. We stand behind it. We're still saying it. Oh, so many things. So many things. Like when our story went live on CBC, it was like one of the most shared articles in history. It was like over 22,000 shares. This happened over the span of two days too. So it was basically the article was like, look at this young person retiring. No, it was more like rejecting home ownership and becoming rich as a result. And that does not play well in Canada. Or where, played really well in Canada. <laughs> yeah, depending <laughs> on how you look at it, where everybody's really on, obsessed, like, with, obsessed with real estate. So we got over a thousand hate comments and I was really surprised because I thought Canadians were known to be super polite. Yeah, <laughs> no, not. yeah, no. So yeah, like they range from, oh, you must have gotten an inheritance. You will fail in the next year and have to crawl back to work. You are being selfish by traveling around the world. It's just all sorts of hate comments. What we realized is that like now that we've been retired for three years and even like some of our friends and family were, you know, not quite okay with what we were doing they just didn't understand it but we found that after being retired in three years like the longer you're retired for the more confident you become and then people notice that confidence and they become curious instead of you know hating on you and then what i started to realize is that a lot of that hate is really about that person it's about them it's not about you like when people say oh yeah well you know you really need to buy a house like, even though we're doing completely fine with the portfolio it really is kind of triggering their life choices and wondering, did I make a good decision by buying a house? All the hate really made me realize that a lot of the times when people are very negative about that, it, it says a lot about them, not about you. The hate mail plays off of your insecurities as well. It's like, uh, maybe we did make the wrong decision. After three years and 
we've been retired and not only has our portfolio not gone down, it's gone up, then like now hate mail, we just laugh at it because we're just like, you know, we're here. It works. You're welcome to follow along, but or if not, not yeah. go Good. away. Yeah, right? whatever, right? Like, the results speak for themselves. Chris, you wrote that you're a sort of tough as nails in part because of your early upbringing in China. It gives me a lot of perspective, right? Because I see things, everything is relative. I see poverty relative, right? Because when someone's asking me like, okay, yeah, but when you went to Canada, were you poor or rich after you, your parents immigrated to Canada? I'm like, well, it's relative, right? I mean, relative to everyone else in Canada, we were considered poor. But then relative to, you know, the people that we left behind and the family members we were supporting back in China, we were quite well off, right? So it really is relative. And the thing is, I think growing up in a different country gave me a different perspective. But I'm not going to like shit over people who grew up in Canada or the States, right? Because they don't see that. So for them, like their life experience are very valid to them. But I would like to show them like, this is what it's like for the rest of the world. So that maybe that will help you in some way and help you understand that like maybe your problems can be looked at from a different point of view. Like my parents, you know, whenever I complain about something, it's like, oh no, like, you know, I have to wear these thrift store clothes and my friends are doing much better. Then they're like, let me tell you a story about that time the government shot a family member right in front of my face. Let me tell you about the time I was sent off to like a labor camp and I had no hope of getting an education for 10 years. My parents always like to say like whenever something bad happens, they're just like, it could always, always, always be so much worse. <laughs> it actually helps me become more optimistic, right? Because I, I tend to look down and see like how far I've come rather than look at everybody else who has something better and be like, oh, why can't I be like them? Why couldn't I have grown up like them? I'm grateful for what I do have right now. So I think that that helps you move forward with your life a lot easier than constantly having to dwell. Yeah, it gives you this mental fortitude that really helps you resist against FOMO and this kind of stuff. Because when people are kind of going, well, you've got to buy a house. And then she's like, I was renting. My parents raised me mostly through rentals and we had to move all over the place. It was not a big deal. I think I, I learned a lot of resilience out of it. So I don't think it's necessary. And what's interesting is that over time, as we've been traveling around and we're meeting other people that are in the FI space or who did it themselves, almost always one person in the couple has spent some time in poverty. And sometimes it's like the immigrant experience, like with Christie's, but in other times it's just kind of like growing up in like, you Appalachian know, in the Appalachian yeah. mountains, in like the country on a farm, getting water from a well and this kind of stuff. But it's like in almost every case, there was at least one person who spent some time in poverty and they were able to use that as a source of strength. Like it gave them this mental resilience to be able to withstand anything. They know they can live off of almost nothing like in the future, if they need to, because they used to live off of almost nothing in survived. the past. Yeah. And it was totally fine. Like there's none of this whole, like, I have to send my kids to a uh, private school and I have to buy a new car every three years because like, it's just kind of like they grew up with that not even being an option. Right. So they're just kind of like, so they use it as a source of strength. It could be that even travel has that potential to a lesser degree where you might save up all your money to buy a fancy pair of jeans. And then you go to the other side of the world and you realize that like the brand's values are inverted over there, you know, like. <laughs> she feels the most at home when she's back in Southeast Asia. It's like a little stool that you sit on and you eat like a bowl of noodles and it's $2 and it really takes me back. I don't think of it as like, oh, I'm not going to sit on these plastic stools. Like that's just gross. Like for me, it, it really is like I'm home. It, it reminds me of childhood and it reminds me of that, you know, like the family 
gatherings and like my grandmother cooking food for me and things like that. So you really don't need that much to be happy. A lot of it is just made up by society. A lot of it is made up by this commercialism, this idea that you need to buy things to make your make yourself happy. Happiness comes from a $2 bowl of noodles. Exactly. That's where <laughs> yeah. real happiness comes from. For me, happiness is a $2 bowl of noodles. <laughs> exactly. There you yeah, go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I have one final question. It's my hardest. But first, I wanted to say I really respect your writing style. I love your writing style. And I respect your work ethic and like putting the message out there and everything. It's really fun. Really fun blog. One of my favorites I've stumbled upon in a long time. Final question is simply... There's not a single person in this audience that doesn't want financial independence. Do you have any parting shots for them? Like something for people on the other side of the fence, a message that might motivate them or something that they could do to start taking steps in a positive direction? Mash it up. (laughs) Mash it up, definitely. (laughs) I would also say like celebrate your milestones towards that goal. Because what a lot of people do is like, oh, I got to get to the million or like, I'm never going to get there. And they look at this Mount Everest that they have to climb and, and it's really discouraging. You don't need to look at the top of the, the mountain. You really just need to look at your, the next step that you have to take, right? Because it really is accumulation of a number of steps. So as you are moving towards that goal, and everybody has different goals, like our goals doesn't have to be everyone else's goals, is that like breaking those goals down into milestones and then celebrating that win every step of the way, that's what's going to give you that motivation to keep going. Don't look at the peak of the mountain. Just look at the next step you have to take. And then every single small hill that you climb, you celebrate that. If you're going to make a financial decision, understand the math. And if you don't understand the math, don't do it. We show you how to master it up on our blog. If you have any specific questions about anything, you know, feel free to write in and we'll try to help you out. Respect. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thank you Thank for having you. us. Big thanks to Christy and Bryce from millennial-revolution.com. I want to get your thoughts on this, boss man, first. I got to say, you know, I am still such an enormous fan of an old school blog. No Facebook scourges and IGs. I want to go to a blog and read some like real, legit, thoughtful stuff that informs my actions, that inspires me, etc. And less and less people are doing it. It's tough. It's expensive. You go to millennialrevolution.com, like it's funny, it's smart. At the top, they have like a binge read option and they have, it's chock-a-block full of awesome content. So big props to them for like, just, I think it's a, a tremendous service. They're not saying like, do this, do that, now I'll take a nap. They're saying like, this is what we're doing. Take a look at it. You know, it's pretty cool. So kudos to them. Let's talk a little bit about your thoughts with the fire movement, man. What can entrepreneurs take from this what we talked a little bit about at the top of the show which is everybody needs to be in control of their finances you know everybody needs to know their position on the board and where they want to move and how they're going to get there these strategies you know whether it be through business or through making four percent or whatever it is like those are strategies for i think sustainability in terms of the lifestyle and in terms of making sure that your spreadsheet is going to look good for the next 30 or 40 years It's also the first step. I really believe that, you know, that was what we laid out a few weeks ago is like step one. It's not a business idea. Step one is figuring out your financial life, figuring out your spending habits and figuring out whether you're going to be in the black at the end of the year. And if you're going to go into the red, why, you know, have a good reason for it. A lot of us, the reality is we're going into the red because we hope something changes. And the only thing that changes is your mindset on this financial stuff. Like you're going to turn that around if you start looking at it. 
what's not going to change it around. Honestly, what I think a lot of entrepreneurs are waiting for is like a moment. They're waiting for a cash influx. They're waiting for to sell their company. They're waiting for something to change. Nothing is going to change except your willingness to look at this stuff and turn the boat around and get it to the black. Yeah. You know, I got the critique. Uh, we're having a financial conversation the other day with one of our friends. I was going through his business and I was like, oh, this, this is crazy. I can't believe you're spending this much here and this much here and this much here. And it amounted to a lot of money, but the business is quite substantial. The critique I got back to me was like, hey, you're really good at this, but you're also really good at the earning side of it. So what if you put in all this energy, Ian, that you have picking apart these P&Ls and balance sheets and actually focused on top line, right? And actually creating. And I think that's a pretty good critique. I think it's pretty easy for someone like me and maybe other people to kind of get into the details of like where all the spending is and counting for every penny and to kind of lose sight of the big picture. We talk about it in the metaphor of the sowing and the reaping. A lot of entrepreneurs are really focused on the sowing side. They're going out there, they're planting seeds, they're like putting out big ideas, they're sort of organizing things. But if you don't ever stop to reap, to actually harvest what you've grown, then you're, you could very easily end up with nothing because you keep planting seeds, you keep going along, and you see it happen all the time. So you really can't have one without the other. I mean, one of the things we talked about with Christy and Bryce in this episode is that, hey, the earning side of this is just as important. And that was one of our like earlier big critiques is that, and they just addressed it head on, which is look like, yeah, this is for high earners. And if you're not a high earner, then you got to sort through that. And that's the same is true for entrepreneurs. You know, like I'm not a big fan of like living off of 40 or 50 or 60 grand a year. Like, I don't know, man, I like to fly around and stay in nice places. You know what I mean? So I got to sort out that seed side of it. I got to do a little bit more sewing. I got to do a little bit more earning. I want to talk about that real quick here because I think people listening to the show, they might be a little bit turned off by that idea because I'm certainly turned off by that idea of living on $40,000 a year. And you know, I think a lot of the talk in the FIRE community is like, look, you kind of close your eyes and put your thumb to your pointer finger you know, in a lotus position and you tell yourself that like, it's okay that you don't have any money and like, it's all about mindset and like, you can be happy wherever you are and all that. So I, that's definitely part of the equation. Everybody should consider practicing those kinds of ideas. But there are people like me and like you that like to buy race car tires and they cost a lot of money. And that's like, that is my happiness. That is my lotus position. Like I like to participate in those activities and they're very expensive. And because of that, I have to earn a little bit more money. You know, this race car tire thing has just done damage to my personal finances because now I have the race car tire heuristic about enjoying yourself. So one time Ian's making fun of me because I was moaning about like buying a hundred dollar part for my bicycle. And he comes to me like an old grandfather, like, do you know how much my race car tires cost for one weekend? For one weekend. And so uh, now I just think, well, it's not as much as a race car tire, so I'll just get it. It's like the most expensive sport. I mean, maybe sailing or something is up there, but that's what I want to do. That's how I want to spend my money and that's how I want to spend my time. So I have a earning problem to solve, right? So let's say my number isn't 40000 It's like, I want to spend $120,000 a year, which I think is perfectly fine if that's what you want to do. But you do have to figure out a way to earn that much. So your spreadsheet makes sense. And so with that in mind, the FIRE community, I'd say, is well stacked with high earners. A lot of those people are developers, things like that. But you can get yourself in a position, maybe where I'm at, where your hobbies exceed how much you can make in a job. And so therefore, what are you left with? I think a lot of people become entrepreneurs, right? So you can control the income side of thing a little bit more. 
A lot of high earners listening to this podcast. A lot of people hoping to become high earners. We believe in you. And if you believe in us, start with that spreadsheet. Start with your personal finances. Whatever your earning, spending situation is day to day, treat it like a business. That's the first step to entrepreneurship. And we thank Christy and Bryce stopping by from Millennial Revolution to share their story with us. You can share your story with us over in the comments at tropicalmba.com slash millennial revolution. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for joining us, boss man. Good price. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.